I invite you to join me, John chapter 11, John 11, verses 1 to 16. Really, John 11 is one passage. The whole chapter is telling one story. We're going to break this story up into three parts. It's going to follow kind of the arc of that story. We're going to take a a break the next two weeks because of our our missions emphasis week, but we'll start this week, and then in three weeks we'll jump back in. As we work our way through this chapter over the next several weeks, we'll see a showdown between Jesus and death. As we come to John chapter 11, we'll see Jesus versus death. And we'll follow the arc of the story. This morning, we'll see Jesus versus death, the inciting incident. In a few weeks, we'll see Jesus versus death, the rising action. And then Jesus versus death, the climax and the falling action. Really, as we come to John chapter 11, we're we're coming to the climax of Jesus' public ministry. There's seven signs in the book of John that stand out. As you work your way through the book of John, seven signs that point to this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is who he says he is. This is why he has come. This is what he is doing. The first one begins all the way back in chapter 2 as Jesus turns the water into wine in Canaan, Cana, at the wedding. It's the first sign. Then, the second sign is the royal officiant's son. You may remember that as as Christ, uh, going back into Cana, healed his son from 20 miles away. It's a powerful sign. The water into wine, the healing of the official son, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda who, who is made to walk again. And we have the feeding of over 5,000 with one little boy's lunch. Then, in that very same day, later that night, Christ walks on the water. Then, we have the man born blind. The man born blind who was given sight. All of these signs point to who Jesus is. All of these signs through the book of John should lead the reader to the right conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. As we come to John 11, we come to the seventh sign. Really the most powerful sign, the climax, as Jesus faces off with death itself. We will see Lazarus raised to life. But this morning, in the first 16 verses, we'll just see the inciting incident, the beginning of this incident. As we work our way through this, we'll see bad news, big plans, and bold, albeit misguided, but bold disciples. First thing we see is bad news. First couple verses simply, uh, like in many passages, simply serve to set the scene. Where we are, where we are in time, what's going on, what's the backdrop. First verse, the first word in verse, 11, in verse 1, 
carries forward the story. Now, at this time, now, just to remind you where we were at the end of chapter 10, Jesus is now beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. You may remember at the end of chapter 10, Jesus is uh, chased out of Jerusalem. They threaten to stone him. They stand up against him. They are trying to, to grab him, to kill him because of his claim. They said, tell, tell us plainly, who are you? And he answers, in power, I and my Father are one. They will not hear him. They will not listen. They stand up against him. They rebel. They plan to kill him. So he's chased out of Jerusalem. He goes beyond the Jordan to where John is. That is where we find him and his disciples at this time. And we see that as he's over there with his disciples, many are coming to him at the end of John chapter 10. Many come to him there. Many believe in him there. So as he's over there, as he's carrying on his ministry over there, a certain man has become sick. This man is identified as Lazarus of Bethany. Now Bethany is back in the direction where Christ has just come from. Bethany is near Jerusalem. In fact, later on in chapter 11, it will identify it for us. It is two miles east of Jerusalem, near the Mount of Olives. It's a town on the road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a road that is often traveled, a road that, that many Jews would take to get to Galilee to avoid going through Samaria. It's a road that Christ has traveled many times during his life as he's made many journeys to back and forth from Jerusalem. This Lazarus is not just any man in Bethany. In fact, we come to see that he's someone who's very Special, very beloved. This Lazarus is sick. He's in Bethany. Bethany is the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This is the first time in the book of John that we are introduced to Mary and to Martha. But it quickly becomes clear that this is not Jesus' first introduction to them or interaction with them. In fact, these are people who care very much for Jesus and who Jesus loves very much. Verse 2 goes on. It clarifies for the reader who this Mary is. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it's her brother Lazarus who was sick. Verse 2 is interesting because the account that he uses to identify her has not happened yet, actually. In fact, it won't happen until we get to John chapter 12, verse 3. In John 12, 3, we come across this interaction where Mary wipes his feet with her hair, with this expensive oil. So why is John using something to identify her that hasn't even happened yet? Well, apparently, as John is writing this, this is a well-known incident. Something that had, had stood out, that would, would have uh, been well known and helped John's original audience to immediately know that's the Mary. That's who he's talking about. Verse 
It's their brother, Lazarus, who is sick. So the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Again, that's one more indication of how special this relationship must have been. He whom you love is sick. That's a unique approach to Jesus. Right? The official, when he came to tell Jesus of his sick son, didn't say, He who you love, my son, is sick. Jesus knows Mary. He knows Martha. He knows Lazarus. It's likely that, that on his many journeys back and forth to Jerusalem, he has stayed at their house many times. This is a special relationship, a close relationship. In fact, surely there's even in this information that he is sick, a hint or, or an expectation that Christ will do something. That Christ will take action. These are people who, who love Jesus. These are people who are loved by Jesus. They know Jesus. They likely believe Jesus. They know that he has the power to heal. They've heard the stories of the water that was turned into wine. They might have even been at that wedding. They've heard what happened with the royal son, official son. They've heard of the lame man in Jerusalem who was made to walk, of the feeding of over 5,000. They've heard of walking on water. They've heard of the man who was born blind, who was given his sight. They've heard of many of the other miracles that Christ has done that we haven't even heard of. They love Jesus. They know Jesus. And they're hoping that he will act. He whom you love is sick. In fact, we will see uh, in a few weeks when we look at verses uh, 17 and on that there is an expectation. In fact, when Christ comes, eventually gets there, they say, Lord, if you had been here, if you would have come, if you would have listened, if you would have acted, he would not have died. It's an expectation, a hope, a, a, a prayer that Christ will, will hear and will react. That's the setting. That's what's going on. She comes to verse 4. Jesus heard that. He said, This sickness is not unto death. The sickness is not unto death. What's interesting is, is as you work out the time in John 11, Christ was probably about a day's journey from Bethany. We'll see that Christ tarries there for two days and then makes the journey. So if you work through that in your mind, this messenger has traveled with a message. takes him a day to get there. Christ stays two days. And then takes him a day to get back. That's four days. When Christ eventually does get to Bethany, we find out that Lazarus has been dead four days. 
there's a good chance that as Jesus stands there, as this message is delivered, as Jesus responds, Lazarus has already died. Jesus knows this, and yet he still makes this promise. This sickness is not unto death. That's not a promise that death will not be involved. That's a promise that death will not be the end. Death will not stay. God has a greater plan. This sickness will not end in death. Really, Jesus is the only one who can make a statement like that. I can't promise that death won't be involved, but I promise that death won't be the end. Jesus is the only one who can say that. In fact, imagine being the surprise of the messenger who's made this trip, and you get there, and Jesus gives a good message. This sickness won't end in death. Okay, good. And you head back, and you're excited to, to give this message to Mary and to Martha. Hey, I told Jesus, and he said it's not going to end in death. And you walk up, and they're all mourning. He's already died. But Jesus knows what he's going to do. This sickness will not end in death. But, for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The end of this matter is not Lazarus' death, but the end of this matter will be the glory of God through the glory of the Son of God. Notice, he uses the name here, Son of God. His favorite name for himself is Son of Man. He uses it all throughout the, the book of John, all throughout uh, the book of Mark, even. I think you guys spent some time this morning talking about that. But Jesus is here making a very clear statement. I'm not just the son of man. I am the son of God. And I will be glorified through this. Jesus, through these seven signs, through his earthly ministry, the seven signs that John at least puts forth to prove his point, Jesus has shown his power over nature. Jesus has shown his power over sickness. In other accounts from other Gospels up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has shown his power over demons. And here, Jesus will show his power over death itself. This will be the ultimate pre-Calvary statement on Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Don't forget, John has a purpose why he's writing. He's trying to accomplish something. He's trying to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's trying to get you then to believe. His strategy, part of his strategy, is putting forth these seven signs. And they've continued to build. Jesus has power over nature. Jesus has power over sickness. Jesus has power over demons. And now we will see Jesus has power over death itself. He is the Son of God. And he will be glorified through this. So as you work your way through the first four 
verses, you see bad news. Lazarus is sick, someone who Jesus loves and cares deeply about. And yet there is a promise and there's a purpose in there. God knows what he's doing. This will not end in death. As you come to verse 5 then, you see that there is big plans. God knows exactly what he's doing. This is not go contrary to God's plan. This, this sickness that has snuck into the lives, this, this difficulty that has come upon these people who Jesus loves is not some kind of a hiccup in God's plan. God knows exactly what he's doing. In verses 5 and 6, you have kind of an odd juxtaposition of these two statements. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, that's the second time that this has been stated, the second time that this has been emphasized. John wants us to understand, Jesus loved these people. He had a very close relationship with them. He cared for them. So, now I want us to back up and let's imagine we're reading this for the first time. We've never heard this story. We find out that Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, this isn't going to end in death. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, we would expect it to say, so Jesus packed up and left. He was on his way right away. He was going to do another miracle to show that he is the Son of God. Either that or Jesus spoke. Jesus loved them, so Jesus stood there and he said, when you get back, Lazarus is going to be better, messenger. So go back. Be encouraged. Be excited. That's not what he does. It says Jesus loved Martha. He loved her sister Lazarus. He loved Lazarus, her sister and Lazarus. So, because he loved them, what did he do? So, when he heard that he was sick... He stayed two more days in the place where he was. That seems odd. John has stressed that Jesus loves these people. So if Jesus loves these people, how is his love displayed in his delay? How is his love displayed in his delay? If he loves them, why isn't he acting right now? Because as Warren Wiersbe points out, and as we will see, God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. Jesus' delay is not an accident. Jesus' delay is not uh, on account of, of some kind of a problem that he has with them. Jesus delays because it is in God's perfect timing. And because it is best for his disciples, it is best for Mary, and it is best for Martha, and it is best for Lazarus, and it is best for those who will see this miracle. And because it will bring him the most glory. Jesus' goal is not to act on their timetable. Jesus' goal is not to give them what they want. 
His goal is to give them what they need. His goal is to do what is best for them. How often have we been in a situation like this where we sit and we wait? We find ourselves in a situation and we've reached out to God. God, take action. We find ourselves waiting. He doesn't act like like we want him to. He doesn't act as, as quickly as we are sure he is going to. You've promised me that you are good. You've promised me that you do all things for my good and for your glory. Why aren't you acting? It's hard to wait. But it's best to wait. God is not on my timetable. God knows exactly what he is doing. At exactly the right time, God does what is best. So how is his love displayed and his delay? Because he knows it is best that he delays. He's going to do something so much greater than they could have ever imagined. He delays because he loves them. He delays because that is in God's perfect plan. So he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, He said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Let us go. Back to Judea, back to the area of Jerusalem. Now the disciples are astonished. Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And you're going there again? You you, you do understand that they want to kill you, right? I understand that you love Lazarus. But we were there just a few years ago when you healed the official son from 20 miles away. Can't you just kind of do that? Let us stay here where it's comfortable, where it's easy. Where everyone is flocking to you to believe and and no one's trying to kill you. Are you sure that this is right? Are you sure? Because if we go back there, they are going to try to kill you. And they narrowly failed last time. Jesus answers, and he answers kind of with an analogy. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
You may not have been aware of this, but in Jesus' day, they did not have electricity. They were limited in when they could work and what they could do. They had about 12 hours to get things done. 12 hours of light a day, depending on the time of year. That 12 hours, that's the time to work. That's the time to, to walk. If you're, going, if you're going on a journey, that's the time to leave. You travel in those 12 hours. You get your work done in those 12 hours. There's a time to work, a time to get stuff done. The sun provides light. It provides opportunity to work. It provides protection from the dangers of the darkness. There's a time to work, but... There's also a time not to work. You have to be faithful in that 12 hours because in the next 12 hours, you're not going to be able to get anything done. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In the darkness, there is dangers. Things you cannot see makes it very difficult, nigh impossible. Just as analogy teaches this, Jesus recognizes that his earthly ministry is drawing to an end. Jesus is, in, is within the last three and a half months of his earthly ministry here. The light is getting dim. The sun is going down. I'm running out of time to work. But now it's still time to work. There's also another analogy going on here where Jesus has said very clearly, I am the light of the world. He made that statement just a little bit ago. Jesus is the light of the world and he will protect his disciples from the dangers of the darkness while it's time to work. I am here. I am with you now. Now's the time to work. My ministry is drawing to a close, but I'm still in the midst of it. It is time to work. Jesus' ministry is dictated by the one who sent him, by the one who sent him, not by those who oppose him. Just because they want to kill me, that's not going to stop me from doing what God has told me to do. It is God who dictates what I do, not them. Now's the time to work. Now's the time when the light is shining. The dangers of the darkness are coming, but now is the time to work. Come to verse 11 then. We see bold, albeit misguided and probably misunderstanding, disciples. These things he said, and after he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. It's now the time to work, and this is what I must do. I must go and I must wake up Lazarus. His disciples said to him, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. It's easy to wake someone up. We don't need to risk our lives. He will get well. In fact, if he's sleeping, he's probably already on the mend. Sleep is what he needs. Typical of the book of John, we see here another misunderstanding. Jesus spoke of his death. They thought that he was speaking about taking a rest in sleep. 
I think there's a reason why Jesus talks in this way here. This, this would not have been an unheard of analogy, death and sleep. But the disciples' point, it's easy to wake someone up. He'll get better on his own. Jesus' point, it's easy for me to raise someone from dead because I am the Son of God. I have a job to do. Only I can do it. And I can do it because I am the Son of God. So Jesus comes right out in verse 14. He's very plain with them. Jesus said to them plainly, Guys, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Lazarus is dead, and I am the only one who can do something. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. This is what is best for you. After all they had seen, remember they were, they were with Christ at the wedding in Canaan. They were with him as he healed the official son. They were with him as he walked on water, as he fed the 5,000, as he made a lame man to walk, as he made a blind man to see. They were with him in all of these things. They've seen a lot. But there's more for you to see. That you may believe, that you may grow in your faith. This is for your good. And in verse 16, kind of a statement from Thomas. Then Thomas, who's called the twin, who's also called, as we know him as, Doubting Thomas. Thomas said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with them. Let us also go, that we may die with them. The first time I read that, I, I kind of read it as a snarky remark. As, all right, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing. We're all going to die. The more I looked at this, I, I think it's more of a bold statement. I don't think Thomas is here doubting that Jesus knows what he's doing. I think this is more of a statement of, of Thomas who may not fully understand what Christ will do but he's going to follow him wherever it leads he'll boldly follow Jesus even to death we see here is that Thomas is courageously committed to Jesus and his mission he trusts him and he's determined to follow him I can see in this, the other disciples sitting there. If he's dead, what's the point in going? What's the point? They're trying to kill you. And Thomas stands up and says, we'll follow him. And if they kill him, then they will kill us. But we're going to follow him. Let us go that we may die with him. 
If you work your way through these first 16 verses, you see that Mary and Martha question Jesus' timing. The disciples question Jesus' plan. But all throughout these 16 verses, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. If they wait, if they trust, and if they follow, they will be amazed. Their faith will be strengthened, and God will be glorified. There's one person in these first 16 verses who sees the full picture. And that person is Jesus. Mary and Martha, they don't see the full picture. From their perspective, their brother is dying. Their brother is actually dead. And Jesus is delaying. From the disciples' perspective, if Lazarus is dead, why are we going and putting ourselves in danger? We'll follow you, but are you sure you know what you're doing? And as we'll see as the chapter goes on, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is working perfectly in the timing of God for the glory of God and himself. As you come to the end of, this of, of these verses, there's a problem. This is setting the stage for, for a great work that Christ will do, and there's a problem, and that is Lazarus' death. But there's also a promise that this will not end in death. And then there's a plea to believe. Trust me. Trust me. Disciples, follow me. Mary and Martha, wait on me. Wherever you are, trust me. we come to the end of these 16 verses we're left to wait as well what's going to happen there's a man who's died a promise that's been made a plea to trust what is going to happen as this chapter goes forward we're not going to see this morning we're, we're going to pause here at the end of this inciting moment but even here, as we pause and as we wait and as we look forward and we wonder what is going to happen, there is application for us in these first 16 verses. In these first 16 verses, the first point of application is this. Trust God. Trust Him. His timing is precise. His plan is perfect, and His purposes are preeminent to anything that we could see or understand. Maybe this morning as we look at these verses, maybe you find yourself a lot like Mary and Martha. Maybe you find yourself this morning in a situation where you are waiting, where you're wondering, where you're worrying. Just do something, God. Why are you waiting? What are you doing? Do you really love me? 
Do you really care? Do you have any idea what is going on? And I would remind you this morning, I would encourage you, trust him. Just wait and trust him. We looked at Psalm 46 on Wednesday. Psalm 46.10, in the midst of, of chaos, be still and know that I am God. Even while you are waiting, be still and know that I am God. Jesus loved them, so he delayed. His delay was an act of love because he knew that that delay was going to set the stage for him to amaze them. They were going to see things that they cannot imagine because he delayed. He delayed because he loved them and he knew that that is what is best for them. So if you find yourself in a situation this morning where you are waiting, know that God sees the big picture. God knows what he's doing. Trust him. Maybe you're more like the disciples and you feel like maybe God is, is making a state, mistake. Maybe he's, he's pushing you into something, taking you somewhere you don't want to go. You're tempted to think that maybe he's lost control. Maybe he's not thinking straight. Maybe he doesn't really understand the situation that he is sending me into. Doesn't he know what this will mean? Likewise, I would say to you this morning, do not fear. Trust him. He is your refuge and your strength. Do not fear. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's taking you. His timing is always precise and his plan is always perfect. Trust him. Secondly, first, trust God. Secondly, be faithful. Work while there is light and follow the Lord where he leads. We read this morning together, Luke 9, 23 to 27. Christ tells his disciples, if you will come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And I would simply call, simply call you this morning to be faithful, to follow the Lord wherever it may lead. His promise is life more abundant. His grace is sufficient, and he is worthy, so be faithful. Be faithful while there is light while he has you where he wants you. Be faithful. And be faithful to follow wherever that may take you. Two points of application as we look at this inciting moment in Jesus' showdown with death. Trust God and be faithful. Trust God and be faithful.